Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. I am a happy dreamer. I'm really good at dreaming. Daydreams, big dreams, little dreams, creative dreams, dreamer, Maximus. Sometimes the world tells me, sit still, be quiet, pay attention, focus. But my dreams, they have a mind of their own. Sometimes my mind just takes flight. I hear a beat and I got to move and then I hear another and another. I wish you could hear inside my head, trumpety, zigzag jazz. That was Peter H. Reynolds reading from Happy Dreamer, his new book from Scholastic. You may know Peter as the best-selling author and illustrator of such classics as The Dot, The North Star, and Ish. He also has illustrated books by Judy Bloom and Megan McDonald, among many others. Today, Peter joins us by phone to talk about Happy Dreamer. The title hits close to home for him. I'm a dreamer, he writes, always have been. Not all grown-ups were happy with my dreaming, my zigzaggy brain, but I was lucky some were. Later, we'll talk with Lester Laminac, a specialist in children's literacy and professor emeritus at Western Carolina University. We'll ask Lester how he helps educators address every child's learning style in the classroom. Hi, Peter. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. My first question is, what inspired the book Happy Dreamer? I attended a conference at Harvard University about 10 years ago on learning differences. And it was absolutely fascinating. They had a panel of really successful people in business and in entertainment uh, in other fields, and they all described the way they learned and how school was for them. And for all of them, it seemed that school was a bit of a challenge, but they always managed to get through because of their interests and that they started working on their careers in first, second, third grade. So they had these amazing stories that they shared. And Dr. Lynn Meltzer, who was running the panel, noted that all of these CEOs and successful people had demonstrated attributes of ADHD. And while they had not been diagnosed as such as children, that they probably had some symptoms of ADHD. And I thought to myself, well, that's funny because they described my childhood. And while I wasn't just diagnosed with ADHD, Uh, I could definitely relate to many of the attributes. And I was thinking to myself, uh, well, if ADHD describes the kind of brain I have, then I think it's a good thing and uh, not something to be worried about. And I thought ADHD sounded a a bit clinical, and I thought, I wonder if I could warm that up a bit. So I took my pencil, and I wrote ADHD, and... For A, I wrote amazing, D, delightful, H, happy, and D, 
the last D, dreamer. So amazing, delightful, happy dreamer. And I went home and I decided to write a little poem about the way my brain worked. And it, it uh, emerged as Amazing, Delightful, Happy Dreamer. And we shortened the title to Happy Dreamer. Uh, but that is how, that's how the book uh, got its start. I want to ask about your, quote, zigzaggy brain and the happy dreaming that you did as a child. Um, yeah, I, I describe my brain as a zigzaggy brain because I have so many thoughts going on at the same time. And I'm actually a pretty good multitasker, but uh, my, my brain will, uh, it'll, it will be thinking about uh, maybe the task on hand, but I'm also doing a bit of daydreaming <laughs> and um, it's, um, uh, it's just, it's the way my brain works and seems to have worked out pretty well. <laughs> Great. Happy Dreamer is not just about kids who love to draw pictures or make up stories, say. How are creativity and daydreaming also linked to problem solving, critical thinking, and the sciences? Yeah, dreaming is a pretty powerful tool. Uh, another word for dreaming is visioning. That visioning is the power to be able to see something that does not yet exist, which is a pretty cool uh, human superpower. We can actually imagine things, and and then figure out how to make that possible. Sometimes it's not possible, but we might be able to get um, maybe halfway there, or it might lead to another idea. Um, Steve Jobs, you know, he was kind of famous for dreaming. He used meditation as a way to to do some daytime dreaming. So he had kind of one foot in, dream, in the dream world and one foot in reality, and he was actually able to see the iPhone and iTunes um, in his in his dreams and then bring them back to his uh, collaborators who were amazing inventors and scientists and, and programmers, and they were able to make it uh, real. So um, I really highly encourage people to do dreaming and visioning and imagining what is possible and then working together to make it happen, make it so. Another theme in your books beyond dreaming and daydreaming is the importance of building self-confidence, especially in kids who don't fit in for one reason or another. Why do you see self-confidence as so crucial? Self-confidence is absolutely the place to start. If you don't feel good about yourself, you begin to shut doors and you stop trying new things. Uh, because you're afraid of what people are going to say, and you begin to then only listen to other people and let other people be the uh, the problem solvers and the doers and the makers. I really am passionate about inspiring people to be a little bit braver than they were planning on being each day. And, you know, sometimes you don't have to be wild and bold and, you know, jump up on stage, but just just be proud of who you are. Be proud of your attempts, you know, we, we all have to try, we have to start someplace. And I want people to feel great about all their marks. I wrote a book called The Dot about a little girl who makes her mark. And, you know, she's afraid to draw. And she has a teacher who makes all the difference. And her teacher says, well, just make a mark, see where it takes you. And Vashti makes that one little dot. And her teacher takes a look at it and says, um, now sign it. And Vashti's a little bit surprised. She's like, well, I, I can't draw, but I can sign my name. And she signs her name. And that's a turning point for Vashti 
because she has made her mark. She's a little wobbly and, you know, a little bit nervous making that mark. But the next week when she walked into art class, she sees her dot on her teacher's wall, all framed in swirly gold. And she looks at it and she's like, hmm, I can make a better dot than that. And that inspires her to to continue and, and to keep exploring and learning. And you see her bloom and blossom. And um, so in that book, it was her teacher having a vision of Vashti uh, being an artist, even before Vashti knew she was an artist, which I think that's a great thing about great teachers and caregivers and parents is that they can see our potential before we even see it. And that's called visioning. And it's also called dreaming, right? You dream of the best possible future for your kids and for those around you. And that's really what I mean about, you know, happy dreaming, you know, being able to see the good things ahead even before they happen. Could you tell us about some of your favorite teachers? I noticed that your book, Ish, is dedicated to one of your art teachers and Going Places is dedicated to a social studies teacher who dared you and your brother to, quote, have original ideas. Yeah, I was lucky. I think, you know, hopefully all of us are lucky enough to have a couple of really favorite standout teachers. And um, I I had a couple of gems along the way. I also had, I had a great math teacher who who challenged me to teach math using my art and my storytelling. He noticed I was a a doodler in school, and I used to draw in class all the time, and not every teacher understood that. And they would tell me, well, you, you could do that after school or do it after class. You know, don't do it in my classroom. But my math teacher said, hey, Peter, do you think you could use that, your art and storytelling, to teach math to another student? And... So I went home and I made a comic book to teach math. And when I came back to school and showed Mr. Matson, he, he said, do you know what you've done? And I said, well, I made a comic book. And he said, well, it's also called a storyboard. It's what a filmmaker uses to plan out a film. How would you like to make an animated film based on your story? So at age 12, I made my very first animated film to teach. Well, that's what I'm doing today. I have a company called Fable Vision in Boston, and we have 30 artists, writers, programmers, uh, animators, and we make stories that help teach and inspire using technology and animation. And uh, it was really my math teacher who connected the dots for me. And I am forever grateful. And I was able to actually dedicate my book, The Dot, to him to say thank you. Oh, that's that's a lovely story. Now, um, as far as Ish goes, I love that book, too. For our listeners who may not be familiar with it, could you tell us the premise of the book and also the meaning of the title, which is really fun? Ish is the sequel to The Dot, and it is a really powerful word that I I discovered in my own life, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to share this powerful word with other people. And in the story, there's a boy, Ramon, who loves to draw, and his brother, older brother, takes a look at his drawing and and laughs at it, and his self confidence gets shaken, and he crumples up his drawing and he tries again. He still doesn't like it. He tries again. He still doesn't like it. He keeps crumpling up his paper and months go by and uh, eventually he decides I'm quitting. That's it. And his little sister Marisol is standing there watching him and he says, what do you want? And she says, well, I'm always watching you draw. And he says, I'm not drawing, go away. And before she runs away, she grabs one of these crumpled sheets of paper and runs off 
down the hall, and he goes running after her. And when he walks into her room, there on the walls of his sister's bedroom are all of his crumpled sheets of paper with his artwork. And he's very surprised. And she says, this is one of my favorites. And he says, well, it was supposed to be a vase of flowers. And she says, well, it's vase-ish. <laughs> and he discovers that his drawings are very ishful. And he begins to draw. And the ishfulness allows him to worry less and create more. And that's my wish for everybody is that they stop worrying. Is it right? How does it compare to other people's? And just say, is this making me happy? Do Am I enjoying this? And if so, keep going. And you can put the world on ignore and keep getting better the way you like to do it, right? Because we're all originals. I'm a twin, so I'm really fascinated with what it means to be an original. And, um, you know, while I am a, an identical twin, there are lots of differences. And I think people have to celebrate those differences and realize that, you know, there's only one you. And the best way to be you is to be twice as you as you. <laughs> um, and uh, I think a lot of times people think there must be another way to do it. But do you know what? Your instincts are pretty awesome. And I want people to trust their instincts more, listen to themselves more. And that's why I'm a big advocate of people finding their dream spaces and uh, be able to hear themselves think. It's a very noisy world out there, and we've got lots of messages coming at us, especially now with devices and screens everywhere, and there's just a lot of incoming information, and I'm really hoping that people find their dream space, which will allow them to stop all the incoming and listen to what's going on inside your amazing, beautiful, dreamy brain, and there's good stuff in there. And that's why I wrote Happy Dreamer, because I wanted people to realize, do you know what? You may not see it. You may not hear it. Uh, but there's amazing things going inside everybody's brains, especially young young people's brains are just so amazing. And unfortunately, as we get older, sometimes we stop listening to that, to those wonderful ideas and being in touch with those wonderful feelings that we had as kids. And it might take decades to get back to having those wonderful feelings. Um, my hope is that my books will remind people not to let go of those wonderful, whimsical, fantastic feelings and ideas. Uh, don't put them on hold for decades. Be in touch with them. Bring, bring them along on the journey, you know, through high school, through college, and as, as adults in the workplace. You know, be, be amazing, be marvelous, be surprising. It's a great kind of brain to have. And I, for those people who are kind of born with that brain naturally, you're very lucky. And for some people, they like things, you know, in the box and very ordered. And my, my advice for them is to try a little, try a little bit more dreaming in your life. You know, go off script, improvise, wing it, you know, Cross some things off your calendar and just, just, just let the day happen. Just let it be. What advice do you have for parents or teachers who have happy dreaming children in their lives? Some kids like to move. You know, some kids like to draw. Um, there's energy inside of kids, and uh, it needs to come out. And then instead of just letting it come out, I challenge teachers and parents to say, hey, how can we tap into that energy? You know, if a kid is drawing, you know, nonstop, 
why not connect the dots to the curriculum and say, hey, you know, is there a way to describe the, you know, let's say in science, the process of osmosis? You know, is, could you make an animated film to, to uh, explain that? Or could you write a, uh, uh, you know, a musical to, about George Washington crossing the Delaware? Um, you know, connect the dots between creative energy and, and the curriculum, and you've got some pretty cool, pretty cool stuff that will happen. Just like your math teacher did. <laughs> right, right. Now, yeah. you have a six-year-old son named Henry Rocket. <laughs> he had, first of all, I want to know how he got that middle name. I think it's pretty slamming. <laughs> and I'd love yeah. to know what and, books you two read together. <laughs> yeah. Well, Henry Rocket Reynolds, uh, yeah, his, he's got a pretty cool name because I knew that he was going to be a pretty cool kid, which he is. He's um, six years old now. Um, when uh, before he was born, we took a look at the ultrasound, and my wife, Diana, said, <laughs> our baby looks like a little squirrel, you know, because he's just little and sort of moving around. And so I nicknamed our baby Rocky after Rocky and Bullwinkle, and that name started to stick. And my wife begged me. She said, please tell me we're not going to name our child Rocky. And I said, of course not. We'll use the formal Rocket. And uh, then Rocket stuck, and we uh, all of our friends bought us Rocket pajamas, and they made us a Rocket cake for the shower. And when he was born, it took us 11 days to name him. And I told my wife, I said, if you don't come up with another name, we're calling him Rocket. And um, But we came up, we looked at his face, and we decided it, he was a Henry. And so we decided the compromise would be Henry Rocket Reynolds. Fantastic. And what types of books does Henry like? Well, Henry is a very lucky boy because his dad not only is a, a, a children's book author and illustrator, but he owns a bookstore. So I have a bookstore called The Blue Bunny in Dedham, Massachusetts, which is just south of Boston. And it's two blocks from our house. So Henry gets to read every book in our bookshop and meet all the authors and illustrators that come visit. But um, we're, um, uh, you know, at home we have stacks and stacks of books. And uh, one of his favorites is a book his uncle wrote called Going Places. His uncle is my twin brother, Paul. And, uh, but he also loves, of course, Pete the Cat. And Henry loves stories, and they don't necessarily have to come from books. What I do is I'll read him two books, but I'll always make up a story. And I just tell him, close your eyes and I'll tell you a story. And uh, I did this with my daughter, Sarah, who now is 30 years old. And she actually is the one that taught me, I think, how to be a storyteller. Because at nighttime, we would read some, but then I would tell her a story and I would use my imagination and just wing it and tell a story from my heart to her. And we did that many, 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 many times. And I think that was really good practice for me to be a, to be a, a good storyteller. What are you working on now? Well, I am working on another book for Scholastic. It's uh, not quite a sequel to Happy Dreamer. It's a story called The Word Collector. And it's something that I do in my life. I love words, and I wanted to share that joy with other people. And I'm working on a animated version of The Water Princess, 
which was a collaboration um, with Georgie Badiel, who is from Burkina Faso. And she wanted to uh, create a book that would help raise awareness and, and money for her for irrigation projects in her country in Africa. And she teamed up with my friend Susan Verde, and Susan helped write this beautiful story about Georgie's life. And it is now a book, but it's going to now be an animated film. So I've been working with Fable Vision and Weston Woods, Scholastic Weston Woods, on an animated film version. So uh, it's fun to see my characters come to life and move and then hear the music and hear the sound effects. Wonderful. Thank you so very much, Peter. Thank you for spending some time with me, letting me share Happy Dreamer and my other projects. I hope it inspires lots of happy dreaming. Now, Lester joins us by phone. Hi, Lester. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You focus on different learning styles in the classroom when you talk with educators. What strategies do you give to the educators to help each child learn and become engaged in their schoolwork? I think the, probably the most important thing is that you're conscious of the notion that everyone doesn't learn like you do. And if you can make yourself aware of that so that you aren't favoring the learning style that you have or the venue that you have um, and offering opportunities for children to explore new ideas and new learning through several avenues, then you have a better chance of making sure that all children have access. So I would want you to have some things that allow you to move, some things that allow you to sit still and listen, some things that allow you to play around with color and lines and pencils and papers and draw some things that allow you to explore um, just jotting down words and looking for connections and maybe going outside and running down the hill and thinking about something or climbing up a jungle gym. As a writer, um, I am one of those people who sometimes hits a wall and people will say, well, what are you doing today? I'm working on a project. Well, you're out in the yard. Well, while I'm outside in the yard, digging up little holes and planting shrubbery or weeding out flowers, I'm also thinking about the plot that I'm stuck with. And I may not be thinking about it consciously, but somewhere in there in the back of my brain, it's percolating. And when I go back inside to sit down at the computer, some things that once were blocked get unlocked. And I think we don't give children the opportunity to step away from work and come back to work and step away from work and come back to work in the way that we allow adults to have that opportunity. Sometimes kids are labeled or singled out and bullied by their classmates for being different, even though, as you say, we're all unique in our way. How can teachers encourage all of their students to feel valued and to value differences? I think one way we can go about that is by making sure that we have a good collection of diverse literature in the room and that we make a habit of reading aloud from that set of literature and helping kids see that the world is made up 
of lots of different people with lots of different beliefs and attitudes and understandings and ways of approaching life. So if I can see someone who is like myself in a book, that confirms something for me. But perhaps it's even more important that I see people who are different from me as it gives me the opportunity to reflect on things, to see options that I hadn't even considered before, and to notice that the world is a little bigger than the world that I know. It gives me an opportunity to dream about things that I may not have even imagined before. In a classroom, and you consider classrooms across America, Each one of those classrooms is a community of people who are together every single day, all day long. And before long, they meld into this little group, and that becomes their world from eight to three. If that group is very much alike, from a small little community, from the same block, inside a large city, It may be very easy to start believing that everybody in the world is just like everybody in my classroom and seeing children who have to walk five miles to get water in a bucket and don't get to go to school, seeing children who live in a desert when I live in the middle of a city, seeing children who live in snow-covered mountains even in the month of June gives me something to broaden my understanding of what the world is like and how people's lives are different and how the decisions they make are shaped by things that I have not even considered, I think opens up the potential for us to have steps toward empathy, which will lead us to a place that we can begin to respect one another. On another note, I think the most important thing a teacher does beyond those things to model himself or herself the kinds of behaviors we hope to see in our children and not to assume that that's the job of the culture or the job of the parents. And it may be. The point is, while they are with me, I am the model they see of how one reacts to unkindness, how one reacts to faultlessness. And I'm the one that they see as a model for what is funny, for what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, and how we treat one another in a small world. So a teacher's best job, I believe, is to be the best model possible of what it is we are aspiring to. What is your best advice for the teachers who are listening about how they can reach and engage all of their students? Well, one, I think, would be just to honor the thinking over the answer. Too much of our teaching is directed toward getting the right answer. And I believe that the right answer is what you want. Teach the answer. What color is this? This is red. Teach what red is. Teach the idea if you want to go for it. If you're going to ask questions, I think the questions should be things that cause you to think, to use logic, to listen to other people, to change your mind. And I want to honor that process over the answer itself. Sometimes children give an answer 
And the answer makes perfectly good sense if you take the time to follow their chain of reasoning rather than just look at the answer and go, well, not quite. Who else has a good idea? And when I do that, I shut that child down because the answer wasn't what I was looking for, but I forgot to pay attention to the notion that the logic was perfectly clear. And when a child uses perfectly smooth logic and arrives at the wrong answer, and I don't help the kids see where that went wrong, the child's brain assumes that line of reasoning doesn't result in the right answer, and they may just shut down. They may not answer again. They may not speak up again. Instead of me saying, interesting, how'd you come up with that? And get the kid to explain the process of getting to the answer. I want to honor, wow, what a lovely way to get at an idea. I never thought about doing that before. But what if, and you pose another question that will redirect that thinking and take them toward an answer that is more appropriate, if that's what you're looking for. I think that's one thing. Another thing I think is leave room for open-ended answers. Ask questions that don't have a right answer. So you take um, a story that you're reading to kids, and there's a detail inside the story, let's say Apartment 3 by Ezra Jack Keats, which is one of my all-time favorite picture books. And I ask the kids after we've read it, say, four or five times, have you ever noticed when Ben and Sam are moving through looking for the source of the music, they bump into a mattress? because In that scene, the hall light is broken. How would the story be different if the hall light had not been broken? Take a few minutes now and just think about that. Go back and look at the story. What would happen if the hall light were not broken? How would the story change? Now, the answers that they give me to that could be varied. And all of them might be logical. And if I were to say who had the right answer, no one would know if as long as all of them were logical. And what I'm after is for them to think about the power of a single detail impacting the plot of a story. And I want that thinking because that thinking helps them interpret this story, but it also helps them to plan, revise, and rewrite the stories that they're going to write. To get at that, I want teachers to have an opportunity to slow down a bit to give children time when they pose a question and the teacher poses a question, to give the children time to pause and reflect. So I'm on a campaign to ask teachers to stop the habit of asking children to raise their hands before they speak. Rather, I would rather the teacher pose a question to the group, say to the children, let's take 45 seconds and think about two reasons why the hall light might be broken. Now sit in silence for 45 seconds. Give me a thumbs up when you have your ideas. Now turn to your neighbor and share what you're thinking. And more importantly, listen to the idea your neighbor has. It might cause you to change your mind. If we're going to take some time for children to speak to each other, then it should have some impact. It should nudge us forward somewhere. Give me a new idea to consider that I hadn't thought of on my own, 
or actually hear some kid validate my own thinking and go, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. And if I see it changing thinking, then I'm actually achieving something where kids in a dialogue or a conversation together arrive at something that is bigger than either of them brought. Then there's something lovely that takes place there. I want them to have that time to reflect, then to share with each other, and then to speak to the larger group. So after about 45 seconds of sharing with your neighbor, I am going to give you an invitation. Someone tell me something that your neighbor said to you that you didn't even think of yourself that we all should hear. Now, you're placing value on someone else's thinking over your own. You're not sharing your idea. You're sharing someone else's idea that you value enough that you think your whole class should hear it. That little process takes the same amount of time as asking a question, having kids bouncing up and down in their seats, panting and waving their arms, taking turns, spouting off an answer. And once they give an answer, they sort of check out because they've done their part. If they're waiting to give an answer and they're bouncing in their seat, waving their arms wildly, I will assure you that their brain is not focused on what they had to say because they have now moved from focusing on their response to focusing on getting your attention. And as a result, when you finally call on that third or fourth kid, the kid says, I forgot because he literally did. He was thinking about getting your attention. And when you surprise him by giving it to him, poof, he's not quite sure what he was going to say. Instead, if we had done that reflect thing a minute, share your idea with one person, listen to that one person's idea. Now, let's hear some ideas from the floor. We would have gotten a bigger, more robust conversation taking place. I'd like to see kids, teachers making space in classrooms for imagination, whether it's science or social studies or language arts, physical education, music. PE, I don't care what it is. I'd like to see them giving some time during those periods where they would say, let's pause a moment and think about this. What could we do to show what we understand? One kid may build it with blocks. Another kid may give me a jingle and sing it to me. Another kid may paint it or sketch it or color it. Another kid may get up and act it out. We're not allowing that. We're not allowing kids to think of diverse ways to show their knowledge because we have an assignment in our mind that isn't necessarily tapping into that. And I'm hoping that we can broaden that just a bit. There's so much to consider there, Lester. Thanks so very much for taking the time to talk with us. We really enjoyed hearing your thoughts. It was my pleasure. Thank you. My great thanks again to author and illustrator Peter H. Reynolds and educator Lester Laminac for joining us. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possibilities.